Well, the introduction to this psalm, Psalm 27, tells us that it is a psalm of David. David bursting with courage, with confidence, with boldness. Verse 1, whom shall I fear? Of whom shall I be afraid? Verse 3, though an army encamp against me, my heart will not fear. Though war uh, break out against me, yet will I be confident. In verse 6, David is looking forward to a great victory celebration. Verse 14, the psalm ends with an exhortation. Wait for the Lord. Be strong. Let your hearts take courage. Wait for the Lord. It's called a psalm of confidence for very obvious reasons. God's call to us this morning, friends, is to put off fear and to approach life with boldness, with courage. We need that call because it's so easy to succumb to fear. Maybe you students are afraid as you look forward to this next year. Maybe you're starting a new school. Will I have friends? Will the friends, the people who were there faithful to me last year, will they, will they be my friends again this year? Maybe you're afraid about that. Or maybe you're looking out at the job market and you're afraid. Will there be a place where I am now? Will there be a place for me next year? Or the year after that? Maybe you're afraid relationally. You're single. You're wondering, am I going to be alone? Will I find someone? Or maybe very honestly, you are married. And your marriage right now is very hard. And you're afraid about that. Will we make it? Fear is very real. And when fear comes, friends, it strangles our joy. It short circuits our ability to love by focusing us in on ourselves. It clouds our thinking. Fear, on the one hand, paralyzes us and keeps us from acting when we need to act. And fear, on the other hand, will lead us to act rashly and foolishly. Fear so often keeps us from hearing God. Friends, God did not give his people a spirit of fear. We are called throughout the scriptures to put away fear and to be strong, to be courageous, to live boldly. And the question then is how? Where does that boldness, that courage, the courage that we see in David here, where does that come from? How do I get it? How do you get it? It's a question that we need to answer because there are at least two counterfeits that are out there. There is a a counterfeit boldness, a boldness or a confidence that is rooted in your circumstances. 
It's easy to be bold and confident, isn't it, when everything is going well? When the bank account's full? When the marriage relationship is, 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 is growing and deepening when, the, deepening, when the kids are happy, when it's going well in school, when we're healthy? It's easy to feel bold and confident and strong when our circumstances are good. But you know that confidence doesn't last. Jesus told us very clearly, in this life you will have trouble, friends. And what's beautiful, friends, about this psalm, what's beautiful about David's confidence and boldness is it is so different. It's not rooted in his circumstances. David is confident here in this psalm in in the face of profoundly difficult circumstances. He tells us in verses 11 and 12, he describes it, Teach me your way, O Lord, and lead me on a path because of my enemies. Give me not up to the will of my adversaries, for false witnesses have risen against me and they breathe out violence. David is facing enemies. They are threatening his life. David is in no easy, comfortable situation. And yet, he is bold. He is confident. He is full of courage, even in the face of those very real dangers. No real boldness and confidence, friends, isn't rooted in our circumstances. And the other counterfeit uh, confidence and boldness is a confidence and boldness rooted in our own abilities. Bold and confident because in the words of Stuart Smalley from Saturday Night Live, I'm good enough, I'm smart enough. And doggone it, people like me. It's a boldness and a confidence that is either blind to or chooses to blatantly ignore weaknesses and sin. Friends, that is also not the source of David's confidence here. David, as you read this psalm, as you look particularly at verses 7 to 10, David is speaking from a posture of deep humility and neediness. David, in verse 9, cries to God, Hide not your face from me, turn not your servant away in anger, O you who have been my help. David recognizes implicitly, God, you could justly turn me away. You could justly and rightly be angry with me. David recognizes he doesn't come to God as a perfect man. David recognizes he comes to God as a sinner. David's confidence is not the chest-thumping, arrogant bravado. It's blind to his own faults and need and sin. What makes this psalm so beautiful what makes david's boldness in this psalm so unique and appealing is that david is at the same time extremely bold and profoundly humble david's eyes are completely open to the difficulties around him and to his own weaknesses and sin and yet he is bold and confident and courageous. Where does that kind of boldness come from? 
Where do you find that kind of courage and strength? Well, David models it for us in this psalm. He tells us. The opening verses of this psalm tell us David's confidence is rooted in two things. Our confidence, friends, must ultimately be rooted in two things if we want to approach life with courage and strength and boldness. First, our confidence must be rooted in knowing deeply who God is. You see this in the opening verses of Psalm 27. David knows who God is. God is light. God is salvation. God is the stronghold. Throughout the scriptures, darkness is associated with chaos, with confusion, with evil deeds done in secret. Ultimately, darkness is associated with death. You remember David in Psalm 23, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, darkness and death. And yet, David knows as light dispels darkness, as darkness cannot continue to exist in the presence of light, so God triumphs over chaos and evil and death. God is light. And David knows that God saves. In desperate situations where there seems to be no way out, God delivers. In the face of adversaries all around, God gives victory. God, David writes, is salvation. And God is a stronghold. He protects He is a safe place in the storms of life. David knew these things. He was convinced of these things. God is light. God is salvation. God is a stronghold. And David knew these things because of all that God had done in the past. David was a Jew. He had read and, and, and heard the stories recorded for us in the Old Testament of how God speaks the world, world into being and brings forth light and overcomes chaos. David knew the stories of God rescuing Noah, of God sustaining Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and protecting them through their uh, wanderings in the promised land. God knew, or David knew how God had sustained Joseph and sent him as a slave and then delivered him and protected him and brought him to the highest place in the land. God, or David knew the story of God hearing the cries of his people in slavery in Egypt. And then with a mighty arm and outstretched hand, bringing them out, overcoming the most powerful empire in the world of that day, bringing them into the land that he had promised. David knew that over and over and over again, God had shown himself to be light and salvation and a stronghold. And if David could say that, because of all that he could look back on and see God had done. How much more, friends, should we be confident? Should we be bold? 
You see, for all of the ways that God had acted and been faithful and delivered in the past, the great problem that humanity faced had still remained unresolved. The solution wasn't clear. The human race was born under the reign of death. Death reigned. Men and women were alienated from God because of the guilt of Adam's sin and because of all the ways that they and you and I fail to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength and fail to love our neighbor as ourselves. The whole human race laboring under God's judgment, as Paul puts it in Ephesians 2, objects of wrath. That is the darkness, friends, that began in Genesis 3 and persisted and persists until the present day. Every one of us born, friends, in a state of enmity with God, under His condemnation, justly deserving His displeasure, without hope and without God in the world. And yet, friends, it is in the face of this, the deepest problem, the deepest darkness, that God reveals He is light and salvation and a stronghold. It is just here, friends, that God reveals that He is indeed going to bring a solution to that problem which David had not yet seen, but which would come from David's own line. That there would be one descended from David, Jesus, God's Son, come into this world Jesus, who would live the perfect life of righteousness and obedience that God wanted from Adam and Abraham and Isaac, that all of them had failed to live, that God wants from you and I, that we have failed to live. But God sent His Son, and He came, and He lived that life of righteousness. And He culminated that life of righteousness and obedience to God by going to the cross and there suffering on the cross, not for His own sins, enduring death, not because He had sinned, but enduring death for the sins of others. And He might bring life to all who would trust in Him. Raising again, rising again on the third day, now victorious over sin and death. Proof to the world that Jesus is in fact the Son of God. God's stamp of approval, God's seal on all that Christ had done. This is the Savior of the world. This is the solution to the problem. He is the one who brings light to the darkness. He's the one who brings salvation. He is the one true stronghold. You can put your confidence, the one you can look to, and be certain of salvation. These truths, friends, are what we call the gospel, the good news. 
Christ who is the light, Christ who is salvation, Christ who is the stronghold. Bold confidence, friends, to face the challenges, the trials, the struggles that we face. The confidence is found here, friends, in knowing these truths about God. But just knowing them, friends, is not enough. Knowing the good news, knowing the facts of who God is and what He has done in Jesus Christ in and of itself is not enough. It must be personal. It must be personal. You won't live confidently. You won't live boldly. You won't live courageously if these things about Christ and God and what He has done are just up here. They have to be here. And it has to be personal. See, David doesn't just say, God is a light, God is a savior, God is a stronghold. David says, God is my light. He is my salvation. He is the stronghold of my life. It was personal. David didn't just know these things as abstract historical truths or things that had happened way back when. David knew them in his soul and had experienced them. David, as a Jew, was part of God's covenant people. He knew, yes, God had done all these things for my people. And David could look back on that. And yes, it was personal for him as a Jew. And more than that, David had personally experienced these things in his own life. Because God delivered him from lions and bears when he was a shepherd. As God gives uh, the giant Goliath into his hand, as David, uh, as God gives David victory in his campaigns over the Philistines and protects him. It was personal for David. Can you say, friend, that the work of Christ is personal? Do you understand personally your need for a Savior? And do you understand and believe And does your heart rejoice in the assurance that Jesus came and lived his perfect life and died on that cross and rose again and reigns today with you in mind? It's personal. It's for you. If you are a Christian, he is your light. He is your salvation. He is the stronghold of your life. Our reading from Romans 8 speaks to that. Romans 8, 31 and 32. Paul writing there. What then shall we say if these, to these things? If God is for us, He is for me. 
He is on my side. He's proven it. He goes on to say in 31, 32, he's proven it by giving his son. He says, if God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? You see the logic, don't you? If God's love for you is so great that he would give his one, his only, his perfect beloved son for you. How can you doubt that he's going to provide everything and everything else that you need? It must be personal. How does it become personal? Well, I just want to say and be very clear. It begins by abandoning ultimate hope in anything else. It begins by saying, Jesus, I recognize I have been trusting in my abilities, my reputation, my upbringing, my uh, moral purity in my own eyes. Whatever I've been trusting in Jesus, I recognize that's rubbish and I'm putting my trust in you. It begins there. It begins, yes, with conversion. with Putting your trust and faith in Christ and him alone. That's where it begins. But that confidence, that boldness is nurtured and grown in our hearts, friends, through worship. I think that's where David experienced it. That's what David is teaching us in this psalm in verse 4. One thing have I asked of the Lord, that will I seek after that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. David is talking about the house of the Lord, God's temple, the sanctuary. It was God's home among the people of Israel. It was where you could say God lived among them. It was where you went to meet with God. It was where you went to experience God. It was where you went to worship To know God's presence and His power. Friends, let me be clear. Our worship is no longer tied to any particular place. Christ has come. Our worship is no longer tied to a place. It is tied to a person. It is tied to Christ. Wherever we are, we come to God in and through Him. But David is talking about worship. David's consuming desire. He says, one thing have I asked of the Lord, that will I seek after. His passion, what fired David's confidence and boldness was being in the presence of God. Drawing near to Him. He says, I've asked For the Lord, this one thing, this is the one thing I will seek after that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. He says, I want to go there and I want to reflect on the marvels and the wonders of what God has done. When David says, I want to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord, he's not talking about seeing God in his some sort of physical manifestation. David is talking about gazing upon and reflecting and meditating on the wonders of what God has done and who he is. That is what our worship is about, right? 
We come and we set before our hearts the beauty of the Lord. We gaze and reflect together each week on the wonder of what it is God has done. There's lots of wonders we see around us. Goodness, here in Santa Barbara, you see the wonder and glory of God revealed in so many ways in this place. But God's glory, His beauty, is revealed even more than a Santa Barbara sunset. His glory is revealed, friends, in the cross of Christ. That God in His great love for you sent His one and only Son to hang on that cross for you. And that through that cross, God put to shame the powers, the principalities of this world. And through that cross, God overcame the reign of death and shattered it to bring life. This, friends, is where the glory, the beauty of God is revealed. That is why any worship that is true worship has to center upon the person and the work, the beauty of God revealed in Jesus. That's what we come here to worship to do. If you want to live boldly and courageously out there, you've got to worship passionately in here. This is not, friends, just an exercise in staid old tradition because you don't have anything better to do on Sunday morning in Santa Barbara. Friends, this is an exercise in setting before our hearts and celebrating passionately together the wonder of what God has done so that when you are out there with all that you face, you have boldness and courage and strength. Friends, when you come to worship, let me be clear. I'm a Presbyterian through and through. I had a friend once say to me recently, Josh, you're the most Presbyterian person I know. But I want to say, friends, when you come to worship, throw yourself into it. Throw yourself into it. If you do not feel like singing, and I want to, I'm stepping out here a bit. You may not feel like singing, but friends, sing. And sing vigorously. And sing joyfully. And as you will very often find, the act of throwing yourself into worship before you have the feelings is actually what creates the feelings. I want to see passionate Presbyterians. The Pentecostals shouldn't get to be all that. No, Um, they shouldn't have all the energy and passion. That boldness and confidence, yes, comes from passionate worship. Where Christ is the center and focus of our, our praise. And you know it's becoming personal. When you begin to pray fervently. 
See, what's interesting, this psalm has two parts. And there are many people that say, well, these two parts don't fit together because the first part is all about David's confidence, his boldness. And the second part, starting in verse 7, is David crying out and praying and asking God. And there were a lot of people, even that I read this week, who said, well, this doesn't make sense. These are probably two different things that were brought together later because if you're all bold and confident, why on earth would you pray? And isn't that the point, friends? That your boldness, your confidence, your strength is rooted only and uniquely and completely in the God who has sent His Son for you. And so crying out fervently to Him becomes the most natural thing in the world to do. You don't do it because you're timid and fearful. You do it because you know the source of real strength. So you pour out your heart passionately to Him. That's what verses 7 to, to, to 11 at least are. Hear me, O Lord, when I cry aloud. Verse 7, be gracious to me and answer me. You have said, seek my face. That's God's calling on us to, to seek after Him. David's saying, my heart says to you, I, I, your face do I seek. Bold confidence. And God is always, friends, rooted with and always bears the fruit of fervent prayer. So let me ask you this morning, what do you fear? What do you fear? Where is fear holding you back? And I want you now to pull out your pens or your journals or pull out your phone. And I want you to do something right now. I'm giving you homework that starts right now. I want you to do it. Pull out a pen, pull out a paper, pull out your phone. And I want you to complete three sentences. And if you don't have the answers right this minute, I want you to write these sentences down. And I want you to complete them when you're home this afternoon. This morning I am afraid of, and you finish that sentence, what are you afraid of? What's holding you back? Where has fear gripped you? Write it out. Write it out. That's sentence one. Sentence two is this. What is true about you, God, is... I want you to finish that sentence. Are you afraid about money? About finances? What is true about God is that He is provider. Jesus teaches us to pray. Give us this day our daily bread. He says, seek ye first the kingdom of God and all these other things will be added unto you. God is provider. So this morning I am afraid of what is true about you is and your third sentence is so I am going to What are you going to do? What is God calling you to do?
in that area where fear has you paralyzed. I loved in my study for this sermon over the last few weeks, learning that this was the favorite psalm of Rosa Parks. Rosa Parks, who on December 1st of 1955 refused to give up her seat on a bus in Montgomery, Alabama. And her courage and her boldness was rooted, friends, in the truths of this song. And her courage and boldness began a movement that has transformed and continues to transform our nation. What is God calling you to do? Where is he calling you to put away fear and live boldly and courageously? Those are the words of the closing verse. Wait for the Lord. It doesn't mean it doesn't mean be passive and sit and do nothing. It says live anticipating the Almighty God who raised Christ from the dead. Live anticipating His work in and around your life. Live expectantly. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your hearts take courage. And wait for the Lord. Lord Christ, give us grace to put away fear. To put away the fear that strangles our love and our joy and paralyzes us or causes us to act foolishly. And fix our eyes upon you, Lord Jesus, that knowing who you are and knowing and seeing your sacrifice that you are fully for us, that we would live boldly and courageously for you. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.